Hello and welcome. It's Ken Drews, and you're listening to Ken Drews Real Dirt, the Garden Show. I I really love damselflies and dragonflies, odinates, odinuts. I guess the people who love them are odinuts, and I'm not alone. Apparently, there's groups forming all over the country of people who are into dragonflies and damselflies, and we're going to talk about them and other wildlife with Jim McCormick on today's show. So stay tuned. Clem's Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Kendrew's on Kendrew's Real Dirt, the garden show. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be here I'm thrilled to be indoors for a change because it has been horribly, horribly hot and humid, and I've just about had it. I'm not sure the plants are looking all that tra- attractive to to even me these days, and I've been working on a project that involves the garden, of course, as always, and I've been looking at the wildlife, and I guess one of the pleasures of gardening is to get up early in the morning and just, for me, sit on the porch, the only time I really get to sit in the garden at all, and listen to the birds around 6 a.m. in the morning. See the hummingbirds come to the bird feeder, see them coming to the tubular-shaped flowers in the garden, listening to the even the kingfisher and uh, the cardinals and the catbird and the Carolina wrens. They have a sweet song, or they have a clicking, nasty sound when... They see the cat or when the dog gets too close to their nest. But it's just intriguing, always wonderful. And then you hear, sometimes you hear this caw, caw of the the great blue heron. I see the great blue heron occasionally, but I hear the great blue heron every single morning making this wild sound. And and when I see it and when I hear it, I think, uh, yes, they are indeed descended from the dinosaurs. Well, today's guest knows all a lot about wildlife. He specializes in non-game wildlife diversity and issues to protect wildlife diversity, especially birds. Jim McCormick works for the Ohio Division of Wildlife, and he is the avian education specialist, and he goes out almost every week to look for birds, look at insects, learn about beetles, and check out the dragonflies and the damselflies and I, as you've already heard, I'm smitten with them, but I'm not the only one. Apparently, there's lots of people who are getting into damselflies and dragonflies, and there's some new books on that. There's guidebooks to the Odinates, uh, and we can get those too and, and identify the ones in our state, in our area, and you can even attract them to your garden. But uh, Jim's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about his experiences with wildlife and what he sees. And uh, the Ohio Division of Wildlife is part of the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. And it's a very progressive group. As with most of these wildlife groups, it is it is funded by hunting licenses. And in a way, that's kind of like the life in the garden. The animals we may not love feed the animals that we do love to see, like the birds. We're going to learn about that and a lot more from today's guest. I'm speaking with Jim McCormick, who is the avian education specialist with the Ohio Division of Wildlife, and that's part of the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. And Jim has uh, encountered, I dare say, every 
form of wildlife from probably microscopic organisms to black bear. Is that right, Jim? <laughs> well, I like a, a lot of things. I, I don't think I'd go to that extreme. I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of things I don't know anything about, but uh, um, my big passion initially with financial resources was birds, and that got me into this thing. Like, so many other people, and that started when I was just a little, little kid, six years old, probably. Uh, and then that branched out into other things, botany. I spent a lot of my career as a botanist, a field botanist, and then, um, you know, leads to other things, insects mm. and fungus and whatever. Well, uh, I have, so I'm interested in the same things you are, although I certainly don't know that much about them, and uh, I'm currently just fascinated by dragonflies and darning needles and those those wonderful, helpful creatures, and uh, I'd love to hear you talk about that, but I have a question for you kind of starting off. Do you think it matters whether we grow native plants for our local wildlife or if we grow exotic plants to attract them or feed them? Uh, great question, and, and absolutely it matters 100%. This is one of the most important, simple things that we can do if we're interested in biodiversity. Um, in a nutshell, virtually all of our, well, really all of our native insects um, are, are co-evolved with native plants. So there's a, a real uh, intricate link between the two. So if you plant a bunch of hostas, from Eurasia or wherever and bring them here, you'll quickly notice, if you look at these things, that not too much is using them. Uh, that's because the, our insects aren't involved with those plants. They're, they're involved with our native stuff. So uh, a big push with a lot of people, and, and I'm involved with this as well, is to encourage people to use native flora and educate them about, about what species really work well, that sort of thing. Um, because even on a very, very tiny yardscape, um, this can make a profound difference and a very visible one. So, yes, there is an enormous link there. And uh, to the point that there are conferences springing up around the country to uh, um, cater to this interest that people have, uh, which is fairly new, in, in learning about native plants and then consequently the link to insects. And the reason I stress insects is a lot of people may not be that interested in those, but they're the building, food building blocks for the higher organisms, birds especially. So if you like birds, and a lot of people do, they want them in their yard, uh, you, you start with the native plants and build up to the birds. Well, so many people love butterflies and love to have them visit their garden, but then they don't want to support the larva, the larval stages of the same butterfly. And uh, what do you say to them? What do you say to people who say, I don't want holes in my plants, holes in the leaves of my plants? Yeah, that's a, it's a valid point they have there and a, a, a appropriate question to ask. Here's what I would say to that. One, the caterpillars themselves, of butterflies and moths, for that matter, that's the two. And, and, and people should note that they're in Ohio, for instance, and this would be fairly true over in your, your state as well. There are about 2,500 species of moths in Ohio. There's about, well, 136 species of butterflies ever that have been recorded here. So there are way more moth larvae, caterpillars, eating your plants than there are butterflies. Okay, now here's the thing about that. If you're a caterpillar, your, your whole goal in life is to grow up and become a moth or a butterfly. You don't want to get eaten. Uh -huh. So you have to eat plants to grow, though. 
Um, what, what they found, and there's been studies done on this, is one, the average gardener really won't notice caterpillar damage if it's under a threshold of about 10% of the foliage that these things are eating. If it stays under that level, um, you really won't notice it. So it, it's not a factor, okay? Okay, point two is that most caterpillars aren't going to um, damage the plant any more than that because birds key in on caterpillar damage. They're looking for that. You know, it's much harder to spot the little caterpillar because most of those hide in the leaf, roll up a leaf or do something to hide during the day. And this is strictly to avoid birds, which are their major predators, uh, and, and wasps and some other things. So, so the bird's going to have a heck of a time finding the caterpillar uh, if that's all it's looking for. So what they tend to do is they key in on damage the caterpillar's caught. Then they know there's probably one hiding nearby, and they come in and start working more closely to find it. So it's not to the caterpillar's advantage to damage the plants heavily, mm, mm. Uh, or they get busted and eaten. So, <laughs> so it's really not a factor. It's just not an issue for the most part. There are exceptions. There always are, but it's really not something to worry about. Uh, I, I actually I never thought of it that way, but I, I can just picture in my mind if you see a round hole in the leaf, that's very that's something you can really see and see from a distance, and birds kind of see the way we do. So that would yeah. be something, that contrast would attract them. Well, it, you, you just brought up a really good point. I just want to mention this briefly. A lot of times when you see a round hole in a leaf, uh, that's usually not probably a caterpillar. Um, caterpillars tend to chew from the edges and work in rows and uh, move in that way, um, uh, or a lot of them do anyway. But a lot of times there's round holes. Those are the, the work of the orthopterans, the singing insects, katydids, crickets, tree crickets, things like this that tend to do that. And they're, they're basically facultative feeders. Um, as a matter of fact, if you hold a cricket or a katydid in your hand, oftentimes it'll start rasping away at the skin on your fingers. Mm. It doesn't hurt. But they just feed on whatever they happen to be on in many cases, and they'll do that, and, and they will cause a little damage as well, but it's a trade-off, okay? Uh, even if you are a keen, of, uh, of, a keen observer like you are uh, and you notice this stuff and you go, gosh, I wish they wouldn't do that to my plants, well, um, think of the other side of the equation because if it's a Katie that doing that, uh, they're the ones making that wonderful symphony of sound at night, you know, that everyone likes. So you have to endure a little of this stuff to accommodate them. If it's a caterpillar doing it and you have to notice you don't like it, think of the tiger swallowtail that you see during the day, coursing around nectaring on your joe pipe weeds or whatever. Uh, there's a trade-off with everything. Right. And a little bit of damage, they, they, the, the, the results that you get from that are well worth it. Well, to me, it's, it's so much nicer to even look at a Katie did than to go into the basin for an arsenal of potentially hazardous chemicals to to do it. You know, really, it's, it sounds crazy, but of course, people still do it. They still want to kill everything, kill every bug. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, a huge mistake. Um, if you do that, and chemicals are best avoided uh, at all costs, uh, would just be what I would say about that. Um, you, you, you do a lot more damage, you know. Um, I, I think a lot of it boils down to if, if a person just wants a purely one-dimensional garden, nuke it with chemicals because that's what you'll get. And then your one dimension is color, okay? So you've got these pleasing palettes of color. Um, and some people, maybe that's all they want, and that's fine. But if you want a much more intellectually stimulating garden on multi-levels, 
don't use chemicals to plant native plants because then you'll get all these fascinating insects and then the birds coming in to look for the insects and eat those and butterflies coursing around during the day in your garden, moths coming out at night to pollinate things. Way, way more interesting. I'm speaking with Jim McCormick and this is Ken Drew's Real Dirt Garden Show. We'll be right back. Clem Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Hello and thank you for staying with me. I'm speaking with Jim McCormick, who is the Avian Education Specialist with the Ohio Division of Wildlife, which is part of the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. It's When I hear things like that, phrases like that, I, I just hope and pray that with the economy the way it is, that money still goes to these important things like the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. We It's so important to support these things. And, and as you know, I'm sure you know, we're under great pressure to cut and save money, and a lot of people don't know how important it is to, well, I'm thinking even with the oil spill, you know, you hear about job losses, and more than you hear about environmental damage sometimes, and more than you hear about the fish, and what are they going to fish if they don't save the fish? <laughs> what, what are fishermen going to do? So it's, it's so important, everything is, like you were saying, everything's connected. Those Those insects are feeding the birds, and we wouldn't have birds without the insects, and you have to think of that. But I, I also wanted to ask you a little bit about dragonflies, and maybe you can tell me something about them and maybe their life cycle a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, dragonflies are, are um, really becoming of, of great interest to people who like nature. And this is fascinating to observe. Um, when I started out as a bird watcher, I'm, well, I'm 48 years old now, and I started when I was six, let's say. So that's a long enough time to make some observations about <laughs> what to look at. And um, the dragonflies, when I started, really no one was looking at them. Okay, now in the last decade especially, there's an absolute proliferation of field guides, very good ones, uh, to cater to all the bird watchers, especially who are turning their binoculars to dragonflies. And with good reason. I, I, I know a fair amount about dragonflies and, and point them out to people a lot on field trips and that sort of thing. And everyone's almost universally smitten with them when you show them something really pretty, like a ruby meadowhawk, like we saw this weekend. And the thing about dragonflies is they are, one, they're one of the most successful forms of life on planet Earth. The fossil record uh, of dragonflies dates back 250 million years no. And they're largely unchanged. So the, if, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, if they're not broke. They were just fine about uh, like they did a quarter billion years ago. And they're, they're voracious predators. They're uh, aerial extremists. And there's nothing that flies as well as one, even a hummingbird. Um, and they're beautiful. And the thing about them is you can garden for them. Um, they, if you have any room for water, you can work with these things and get um, some of the more common species to frequent your garden and uh, actually even, you know, oviposit or lay eggs on the right kind of plants. Again, native plants. This isn't going to work on non-native stuff, but there are certain native plants that some species stick their eggs directly into. 
uh, like some of the rushes and that sort of thing. Very easy to get these from nurseries and plant them, grow them, and then work with dragonflies just like you would butterflies. Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot more of this as people become more keen on dragonflies and, and aware of how you can attract them, uh, even in the most urban landscape. So you don't um, need a lot of water to attract them? No, not really. You know, dragonflies are only only beholden to water uh, as a, a larvae, and they're called nymphs. And the little nymphs have to live in the water, and they do, okay? And some of the nymphs, actually, uh, of the very biggest species are nymphs or larvae in the water for up to several years. So there's oh, been that. Yeah, it's like a butterfly and a caterpillar. You know, the but adult butterfly we see in most cases isn't with us very long. It's around a lot longer as a caterpillar. And that's true of dragonflies. And um, so, yes, they do need water um, for, for the larval stage. Uh, but when they emerge, they don't. And as a matter of fact, a lot of them, once they've made it, the females, they get the heck away from the water because the males tend to stay at the water. And the males are so incredibly aggressive towards the girls that... Once they've mated and laid their eggs in the water, they get the heck away and go into the, the meadows, you know, that are higher and drier because there's less males and they get harassed less. So, no, they're only, only smit, or beholden to the water during the uh, larval stage and to lay their eggs within and around the water. Um, well, the other, oh, go ahead. I was going to say the other thing that's interesting, too, is there's a number of species that are highly migratory, just like birds are, or monarch butterflies. And they will drop in and visit your water. Because they're definitely still attracted to water, even as adults, but they'll drop in and, and uh, hunt around the water, stay around for brief periods, and then continue on their journey. So you're, you're attracting these migratory dragonflies as well. I was just going to mention that I put some bamboo garden stakes around my garden because they, you know, just in the open, because the dragonflies love to, to light on those, and I get the chance to look at them. Just some stakes that are a little bit taller than the plants. Not really to attract them, but you know, they like to stop, and I like to look at them, and it gives me a, an opportunity to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they love perches. A lot of them, they're like peregrine falcons, basically, of the insect world. They they land on perches. They're very easy to observe. If you're, you're quiet, you can sneak right up on them. And every time you see one in the air, jigging and jagging, it's capturing something. They're total carnivores. They eat meat and they kill things. And a lot of things they kill and eat are things we really don't like too well. Um, even mosquitoes. Those mm. are a little small form, but they well eat them. But that's what they're doing. They're catching flying insects of other types and consuming them and, and watching for their prey to fly by from these perches. So they're just really interesting behavioral-wise to watch. Do you know approximately how many there are in the United States of... I guess the darning needles and the dragonflies and the other things are, they're not really all the same species. Well, certainly not, but are they all the same genus? Uh, well, they're all in the family, uh, or the order, Odonata, okay? They're all Odonates, as the uh, scientists say. Uh, lots of families in there, and the big, big division between dragonflies are between damselflies and dragonflies. Um, uh, damselflies tend to be smaller. They hold their wings up over their back, pressed together when at rest. Uh, a lot of times, a lot of them have blue on them, uh, and they're really small. Well, dragonflies, on the other hand, they tend to be bigger, more robust, and they hold their wings out like uh, an airplane at rest, flat, on a flat plane. So those are the two big um, 
divisions of dragonflies, but there are myriad species. In Ohio, we've had 164 species in our state. Your state would be even probably a little more diverse than that. And then, like, like everything, basically, as you move more towards the equator, they increase greatly. Um, so a place like Costa Rica, once you get down into Central America, has, um, God, it may have as many species as dragonflies uh, down there as all of North America, North of Mexico. Mm. So they increase a lot as you move uh, down there. But they, um, no matter where you are in the U.S., especially the eastern U.S., there will be lots of dragonflies around to look at and uh, lots of good information on them these days. And it's not too hard to learn about them and figure out what you're looking at and, and even garden for them. And that's something I think we're going to see a lot more of uh, with rain gardens and that sort of thing is uh, an increasing sophistication about the sorts of plants that you want to plant that are good for dragonflies. Well, I'm speaking with Jim McCormick, and Jim's got a great blog. And Jim, I'm going to put a link on the Kendra's Real Dirt website so that people can go visit your blog. And I just have time for another, just one more question. Do you have a life list of birds? Have you been keeping a life list in all these years? Oh, yeah. I, I'm not a big lister, and that's the term for a bird watcher that uh, uh, really is fanatic about keeping lists. The only one I really pay attention to is my Ohio one. Um, and it's big. It's probably the third or fourth biggest list in Ohio. It's 362 species, I think, now. Uh, I couldn't quote offhand what my world list is because I've done a lot of traveling, but it's pretty big. So I, I, I'm not real keen on that, you know, and smitten with listing, but I, I do keep tabs on that sort of thing. Um, hey, one thing, too, uh, before we get off is that I really wanted to mention, for those of you that find yourself in or around Ohio, if you really want to learn more about what we've been talking about on August 6th through 8th, that weekend, the Midwest Native Plant Conference in Dayton, Ohio, uh, lots of expert speakers, field trips, just about what we've been talking about. And uh, we welcome your attendance. Google it. Just go to Google Midwest Native Plant Conference, and you'll find our website first thing that pops up, and, and you can learn all about this. That's great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Uh, I We could talk for hours. <laughs> I have so many questions and so many things I'm thinking about, but uh, I, I must have you on again. And I've been speaking with Jim McCormick, who is the avian education specialist. And uh, thank you again, and I look forward to visiting your blog myself some more. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, Ken, and uh, anytime I can be of help you, let me know. Okay, great. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. It's always good to be reminded of the circle of life, and I think Jim McCormick expressed that very well. We have to, we have to accept the damage in the leaves, which won't be so terrible. If you have the right uh, insects eating your leaves, then the birds will see them, and they'll keep those populations in balance. What we really need to do is promote that balance, promote the balance by growing native plants, growing the plants that evolved with the insects, that the insects go to, you know, when the gypsy moth infestations that we have every, I don't know, decade or so, there seems to be an infestation. The gypsy moths come and the caterpillars do their damage. And I don't know why the birds just don't seem to go after those caterpillars. I'm saying I don't know why, but I suspect it's because they didn't evolve to eat those critters. The same with the Japanese beetles. The Japanese beetles do so much damage and 
I'm not sure, but the birds don't seem to go after them either. Maybe it's their hard ectoskeletons, but I suspect it's another case of coevolution. They didn't evolve to go after those insects. Now, there's, of course, plenty of things that do like exotics. The butterflies love the butterfly bush probably more than anything else. But buddleias, they're plants that are being phased out because they tend to self-sow, and we don't want to grow any invasive plants. I, I found that buddleias, for me, do not self-sow, probably because the climate is too cold for the seeds to overwinter. But then again, the climate's changing as we're even finding out this summer with these incredible temperatures. So I'm going to keep my eye on the, a couple of buddleias that I have, and maybe they'll be going, going away too. But then I can grow some more butterfly weed, Asclepius tuberosa. The butterflies love that. They love a lot of plants. So why not grow more native plants that the birds evolved to live with? See you next week on Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show.